Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this From the Field episode, Managing Editor Brian Gorman talks with Nancy Murphy, founder and president of CSR Communications, about historical leadership traits that are no longer serving either leaders or their organizations, and how to be more successful in the area of change management. We hope you enjoy this installment of the Change Management Review Podcast. Welcome to this Change Management Review Podcast. I'm Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of Change Management Review, and our guest today is Nancy Murphy. Nancy has spent her career saying what others are afraid to and learning to say it in a way that others will listen. That's a real skill, Nancy. Her passion is teaching leaders how to make organizational change stick, another real skill. She has experienced the challenges of leading big change within established organizations and is willing to share both the mistakes she has made and the solutions she has discovered. As a trainer and speaker, Nancy has shared her expertise from Kuala Lumpur to Kansas City and London to Las Vegas. She holds a master's degree in public affairs from the Humphrey School of the University of Minnesota, a master's in health communication from Boston University, and a bachelor's degree in American studies from the University of Dayton. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks for having me, Brian. When we were talking uh, before this podcast, you said something that really caught my attention, which is the need for greater feminine energy, feminine leadership in our organizations. So I'd love to kick off there. What brought you, first of all, to that conclusion? Hmm. Wow. Just starting off with the big (laughs) questions, Brian. (laughs) No warm up at all. Let's dive right in. (laughs) I love it. I love it. What brought me to that, I guess the shortest way to describe the journey is just experiencing the 1980s leadership style that probably didn't serve us terribly well in the 1980s, but definitely doesn't serve us well today, just like the big hair and you know shoulder pads and many other things from the 1980s that no longer serve us. Times have changed. The way we teach people to lead is not aligned with the types of leaders we need now. And then we get into the midst of the pandemic and we see over and over every Harvard Business Review article, you know, Forbes, Inc., all the, all the things you read about what we need in our leaders right now are things like empathy, compassion, vulnerability, great listening skills. What do people need and want in these times? They want autonomy. <laughs> they want the ability to choose. They want flexibility, right? And then we um, did our first Entrepreneur's Insight Series paper last summer, where we interviewed a bunch of diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders. And one of the questions I asked them is, you know, what's sort of getting in the way? Why have your organizations not solved this already? And to the person, they said the type of leaders we need not the type of DEI leaders, the type of leaders, period, have all these characteristics, which are much more feminine style leadership characteristics, collaboration, being open, admitting you're wrong, wanting to learn the growth mindset, right? And so it just came front and center for me once again, that the type of leaders we say we need 
are not the type of leaders we're training. And so how do we close that gap? It's interesting listening to you, Nancy. I was just talking with a colleague last night about what he refers to, and I refer to actually as enlightened management. Mm. And he was looking back at the history of the type of leadership that you're talking about. And it goes back to to Peter Drucker, who was Mm. writing about it when Peter was in his 90s. So this is not necessarily a generational thing, although it is tends to be reflected generationally. And it's reflected in McGregor's writings around theory X and theory Y. And like you, I certainly have seen the need for this type of leadership, even before the pandemic. You know, when you Mm -hmm. look at what what drove the, the Gallup study about what drove millennials to mm. leave their jobs. It was, you know, I want a coach, not a boss. I, I want someone who cares about my life and not just my paycheck. And, and I, I want purpose in the work that I'm doing. I, I want exactly what you're describing. So my next question goes back to something you said and something that is in your bio, which is your passion is teaching leaders how to make organizational change stick. Many years ago, I was work, doing some work with Daryl Connor, mm-hmm. and he spoke to a group of, I think it was about 40 partners of a global firm that was undergoing transformation. And when it was all done, he, he took some questions. And one question was, all of us are type A leaders. What does that mean for our efforts on this change? And basically, Daryl said, good luck. as you just said you need to admit that you don't have all the answers you need to admit that you're making mistakes along the way so how do you find the leaders that will listen to you and learn well i don't believe that my role is to change organizations or change leaders necessarily (laughs) I remember being at a conference a few years ago in Boston on a panel and there were you know a bunch of consultants in the room and the uh, moderator of the panel said how many here change organization you know like we go in and we're the saviors right of the and so I guess I'm answering your question in a way of I look for the leaders who will emerge as opposed to sort of me digging in and finding them. I think the folks who are naturally attracted to working with us are ones who are going to have those characteristics and mindsets because they'll sort of mesh more naturally with my style, with how we approach organizational change work. And I think that a lot of the emerging leaders, the early career leaders are embracing more of these characteristics because they understand just what you said with the millennial and now Gen Z in the workplace, right? Which is going to change the workplace even more. They're not looking for a boss. They're looking for a coach. And so they're going to reflect or, or embrace the kind of leaders that they want as they grow into those roles. So I'm definitely seeing that with more of the millennial folks that we work with, that they're just sort of naturally drawn to that growth mindset. Of course, you know, this is not, that's a gross generalization, right? right? right. From, from any generation, you can't, there are always going to be people that will be not reflective of that. But I think sort of holistically, 
embracing that growth mindset and really wanting to be the kinds of leaders that they wish they had had earlier on in their career. How have you seen the role of leader change going into and now potentially coming out of the the COVID pandemic? I am seeing leaders, the more self-aware leaders, I guess, recognize that they can no longer, if they deluded themselves that they were in control of lots of things that they probably weren't in control of in the past, they know they're not in control of even more now. So wanting to step more into that to get trust, you need to give trust mindset, right? So that means I can't see you sitting in front of your computer. And when I walk by, you know, catch you internet shopping. I just had a conversation with somebody about this the other day, onboarding a whole bunch of new team members. And she's not hired a lot of folks since the pandemic, but now she is. And she's like, I I really, Nancy, I want to talk to you about how to onboard these folks, because how am I going to hold them accountable when I can't walk by and make sure they're not, you know, playing solitaire on their computer? So again, to the extent that you thought that was actually controlling their effectiveness and holding them accountable before, okay, you can't do that now, right? So how do we shift that mindset to the extent that we've learned telling people over and over again, how to solve a problem or do their job means needing to tell them over and over again, versus helping people come to their own ahas, their own insight, which frankly might be better than what we would be telling them to do anyway. And how do we get out of our own way of, we have to have all the solutions. We have to have all the answers. We tell people what to do. They just do it. That is not the workplace that was probably what we needed before the pandemic. It's definitely not now. So I think leaders are starting to become more self-aware of how their role has to change and how freeing it can be when they realize they don't have to have all the answers. I mean, that's something I've said a lot when it comes to organizational change. If we leave no space for co-creation, if we try to pretend we can predict the future when we can't, then that shuts people out. It erodes trust, all of that. But when we can have things, you know, within some parameters, space for co-creation or say, you know, I haven't figured that out yet, invite people to come in and solve the problem with you, you know, then we usually get a much better result. Yesterday, I was coaching a client who just as of the first of the year, uh, made a lateral move inside of his organization into the highest revenue generating division. And he said, you know, I have to learn all over again. I feel like the dumbest person in the room. And I said to him, how do you take advantage then of being the dumbest person in the room? Echoing, you know, sort of what you're saying that, yeah, you don't have all the answers, dude. (laughs) And that's okay. And that's okay. And what's that, what's that quote of, you know, if you're the smartest person in the room, you better find another room. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, yes. Because what, you know, we miss opportunities to learn if we always have to be or, um, or are the smartest person in the room, then start to find some different rooms. You used a word a moment ago that I want to hone in on, because I think it is such a key to change management success, and that's co-creation. Years ago, I, I studied under Judith Glasser, who really... I think brought to life the neuroscience of conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and she talks about three levels of conversation. The first level just being data exchange, if you will. Uh, I'm Brian, you're Nancy, that type of thing. The second level 
being positional. So I've got the answers. This is how you should be doing this. This is how you should be doing this. I think there's a better way. Yeah, but I'm the boss. (laughs) Sort of that positional conversation. And the third level is Mm co-creation. And co-creation takes trust, which you also mentioned earlier in this podcast. What counsel do you give leaders in terms of how they build trust within their organizations? Yeah, it's something that we start with in most of our trainings with leaders in our Entrepreneurs Influence Lab, for example, and in many of our conversations. Um, We focus on what does it mean to be a credible leader of change? And most of the time, right, this is probably going to sound familiar to some of the of your listeners, folks will come to us and say, I just how do I get other people to do what I want them to do? Right. This is the change that we're. And so just tell me how to get people on board. And, you know, I always say the secret to getting others to do what you want them to do starts with looking in the mirror. So are you a credible leader of change? And you know, we can talk about what that looks like. Number one, it's being open to change. (laughs) So we oftentimes get fall so in love with our idea and our vision for change, which we might've been mulling around in our heads for quite a while before we share it, that we get really defensive or we're not open to any sort of shaping, adapting co-creation of that, right? So that's one of the, the challenges. And then the other is how do we build trust? And I love the Stephen Covey visual of the, the emotional piggy bank, right? The emotional bank account. So what are we doing on a regular basis to put deposits in the emotional bank accounts of our team, of um, the wider organization, of those that we aspire to influence within the organization, so that when we make a mistake or maybe we get a little defensive when somebody pushes back on our um, on our idea or our plan, and we need to make a withdrawal, okay, well, we've got that deposit. We've got that balance that will sustain the withdrawal, right? And w- we won't deplete the whole relationship account. The other things that we often talk about are, so give trust to get trust. That's what I mentioned, right? So if we don't trust the people who work for us, if we don't trust our colleagues who need to be part of this change effort with us, if we're not willing to let some folks into our inner circle, well, we're not going to be trusted. So the fastest way to get trust is to give trust and little things like, you know, make a promise just so you can keep it. And it doesn't have to be a big one. It doesn't have to be, you know, I promise everyone's getting a 20% raise next quarter, you know, or next year. No, that's not what we're talking about. It can be little things like people asking for, you know, some small changes in their work schedule. Yes, I, I, I can make that happen for you. And then you actually do it or someone wanting access to a resource or an article that you can provide. Great. I can do that for you. Then you follow through on it, right? Those little things start to put deposits in the emotional bank account. So really becoming a credible leader of change, starting with looking in the mirror, that's the first step. One step not to take is putting that software on your equipment that lets you monitor whether people are shopping or playing solitaire online. That is not a demonstration of trust, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting reflecting on something you said a few moments ago. I'm doing a lot of work now around the four-day work week and with 
the the global four-day workweek movement. And uh, in talking with Charlotte Lockhart, who is uh, co-founder and CEO of the global movement, she said, people ask me, how am I going to make sure my people are productive in the four days? Because the, the, the premise of the four-day movement is you give us the same level of productivity, we'll give you 100% of your current salary, and you'll work a reduced number of hours. And so she said, people will say, but how do I measure productivity if we go to a four-day work week? And the very simple answer is, how do you measure it now? And are you really measuring productivity if it's seats and butts? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Right. I mean, it's the same thing with our education system, right? So what what do we, how do we measure or how do we hold people accountable in K through 12 schools? It's not really about how, what people learn and demonstration of that learning, <laughs> right? It's how many hours are you sitting in a classroom yep. or now yep. in front of Zoom or whatever it might be. So, yeah. yeah. Nancy, what else can you offer in this final few minutes to our listeners that you think would be of significance? Well, so let's go back to your productivity question and even the K-12 school example I just gave. One of the things I think your listeners could take off of this conversation and go test out immediately is the concept of artifacts. So I often say that change leaders need to operate more like Indiana Jones in that we need to go on a quest, an archaeological dig to find all those little things we've left behind as we move forward with some change that tell us who and what we value, what matters and how things really get done around here. And oftentimes they conflict with the change we want. So (laughs) if we're talking about a shift to a four-day work week and whatever that means, are there little things we're leaving behind? Like it could be something as simple as a time entry system that still has five days of the week that you enter your time in, even if you put in zero on Friday. Like that's a subtle reminder. It's an artifact that there are actually five days in the work week. So what does that do? It either annoys people because they now still have to enter zero on Friday. So there's friction, right? You're making it hard for people to do it as you want them to do, or it erodes trust. It sends a subtle signal that we didn't take Friday off the list, you know, or we didn't take, you know, there's still five days that show up. So yeah, we maybe really hope you're still going to work those five days a week, even though we're telling you, you only have a four day work week, right? So people don't believe you. So there's uh, some fun things that we do for organizations to to help them identify where are the richest places to go dig for the artifacts that might be incongruent or sending mixed signals, making it really hard for people to do what you want them to do. How do we go on that archaeological dig to unearth those artifacts? And even if they're things you can't do anything about, right? So we will map, what do you have direct control over, indirect control or influence and no control over? Even if they're things over which you have no control, like a regulation from the state or something. If you call it out and say, we know this is incongruent, we know it's getting in the way, we can't do anything about it. Here's how we're going to sort of mitigate it or insulate it. But if you pretend it's not there (laughs) and don't call it out, right, then you have those challenges, the lack of trust, the erosion of trust, et cetera. So it's really important for folks to sort of look 
And it's great to do this with your teams, because if you're the leader, you may not see all of those hidden artifacts. You might see the ones on the surface, but sometimes you need to dig a little deeper. So it's kind of a fun way to get at some really powerful signals that might be stalling the change that you want. Nancy, I love that. And I I just have to add two real quick examples of what I think you're talking about. Interviewed the chief marketing officer uh, for a different podcast of Wanderlust, which has gone to a four-day work week. Hmm. And she said that they monitor Slack and email volumes on those days that people are not supposed to be working. And if they start to see a pattern of people coming back to work remotely on the days they're not supposed to be, she'll sit down with her team member and actually discuss how they can adjust the work. And then I work with another colleague who in his email signatures puts, I have no assumption that you work the same hours as mine. Mm -hmm. So please respond during your normal business hours because leaders sending out emails seven days a week is a sure signal that I'm supposed to be working seven days a week too. Right. So those are some new artifacts, right? That people are laying down that align with the change that that they want, you know, an example of a, of an artifact that's in conflict around that is a nonprofit we worked with that was struggling to retain women leaders. They would get to a certain level in the organization and then they would leave and they put a mentoring program in place and created a gender council to advise the CEO and none of that worked. We came in and found several artifacts that were in conflict with what they said they wanted, such as standing 7.30 AM leaders meetings and shout outs at the start of every staff meeting that sounded a little something like huge thanks to Brian and his entire team for working around the clock on that big proposal last week. So appreciated. And usually when I share these examples with men, they're like, well, I mean, they're thanking people. They're appreciating the effort. What's wrong with that? Well, that's sending a subtle signal, right? That it's impossible to have family obligations that I want to fulfill and professional obligations at a certain level in this organization. So I'm going to have to choose no matter what you tell me, right? The best part on that is that you can fix those things without any special authority or spending any money. So oftentimes we think, oh, to unearth these things or to to fix them, it's going to cost a lot of money. We have to have a big committee. It's going to be, you know, those are pretty simple things that you can switch easily. Nancy, thank you so much. This has really been informative. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Change Management Review Podcast with Brian Gorman, Managing Editor of the Change Management Review, and Nancy Murphy. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.